Thank you for listening to the show. I hope it inspires you and expands your view of what's possible in your journey of wealth creation. My hope is that through a repeated exposure to the ideas and the guests you will find here, your view of finance will change for the better. With that said, there's an important caveat that must be stated. The opinions you will hear on this show are just that, opinions. Please don't misconstrue any of what you're about to hear as legitimate financial advice. Do your own research and don't take anything at face value. Understand that everything you hear on this show is someone else's experience that may or may not work for you. I don't know you, I don't know your situation, so I can't tell you what to do. But I can tell you that the one goal of this podcast is to make you richer, wealthier, and ultimately more fulfilled as a human. I'm glad you're here. Please rate it, review it, share it with the people in your world that matter. And without further ado, enjoy the show. There's one person that I that's interviewed me, well, two people that have interviewed me multiple times, and both of them always send like pre-scripted questions, and that I've they're two of my worst interviews, both times. Like I just like to go with like wherever it takes me, and I don't even care what's asked. It doesn't even like I don't even. There's no topic kind of off off uh, topic really. Watch this be your best interview of all time. That'd be great. Of all time, dude. I want to be on Netflix when you make your debut with Kevin Hart. I want a, a little picture, like a picture in a picture with our interview on it. Oh, man. What's up, everybody? This is Garrett Gunderson. Uh, if you don't know who Garrett is, you are going to lose your mind. Descendant of the great Rockefeller family. No, not really. Not legitimately. Uh, but it is one of his most popular books, What Would the Rockefellers Do? He also a uh, best-selling author of several books. Killing Sacred Cows is another one. Garrett, to be honest, I've never told you this. But you kind of were one of the linchpins in getting me interested in like financial literacy. And I'm sure you hear that all the freaking time, uh, but it's true. And so I'm excited to talk to you about whatever you want to talk about. First of all, I know you're like a, a world famous comedian. You're overtaking the greats right now. Well, I don't know if I'm world famous at the comedian thing yet, you know, but I'm at least uh, starting my way down that path. Dude, we, I was having a cigar when we talked, like, was it two months ago, I think? Yeah. And you explained comedy to me, and I understood it for the first time. Because I didn't grow up going to shows or going to clubs, and you started talking to me about comedy, and I was like, holy shit, I want to be a comedian. And then, you know, I was like, wait a minute, let's just let's just pause for a minute. You want to talk about that because you kind of explained it like music. You got to be careful telling me you want to be a comedian because a couple people that said that to me, I had open for me on my tour. And they crushed it, I heard. Dude, well, Garrett White and I have been friends for a really long time. And uh, I sent him my comedy special because I filmed the one April 15th. And, you know, it's not public yet. It's, it's being pitched to all the streaming services. And he was like, dude, this is amazing. And he's like, and I just said, all right, you're going to open for me in La Jolla. And he crushed it. And then I have another friend, Jonathan Sprinkles, that lives in Austin. He, or it lives in Houston. But when I was in Austin, he went to school there. So he's like, you're going to open for me. And he crushed it. So it's it's cool to give someone their first opportunity on stage. And uh, they both really did a good job. So, you know, you're in Nashville. Maybe I'm going to come do a set in Nashville. I'm going to throw you up there before I go on. Dude, I'm in. I'll tell you right now. I'll just say yes. And I'll back myself. Garrett told me, uh, Garrett White told me it was like the hardest prep work for anything he's ever done. I was like, you got to be kidding. He kept turning to our buddy Keith Yaki going because I did an hour and 15 minutes that night. He's like, dude, that's so many punchlines. And he realizes how much work goes into refining that, you know, 
I mean, it was from November 15th when I start writing my special till April 15th. There were, I don't think there was a day that went by that I didn't do comedy. That I didn't, you know, work on the jokes, refine the jokes, memorize them, tell them. I did, I did Zooms because, dude, comedians have a crap lifestyle for the most part. They're going to these open mics. They're listening to a bunch of terrible jokes. They, they, there's some good, but there's a lot of bad. And then they get three minutes on stage. I told my manager, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do Zooms. I'm just going to do it from the comfort of my home. And I, my basement turned into a comedy club. And I would have like some of my friends come over live. So I'd be doing Zoom, but I'd have people in person. And my manager watched the very first Zoom. And he's like, dude, how are you that good on Zoom? I'm like, oh, I cheated the system. I had people in person <laughs> so I could get my timing down. My rehearsal the, the night before I actually did my special, I had a bunch of friends on that couldn't make it for whatever reason. And half of them are on mute, their cameras aren't on. And I just ate, oh, it was the worst set ever. The night before I'm filming. And uh, my manager's like, no, it's a good omen, man, to have a bad night before. I was like, I hope, because it was really terrible. And then I ended up having a great set. Do you stream them somewhere or is it just for your rehearsals on Zoom? Just rehearsals, just, just like someone that, might be like, hey, I want you on a podcast. I'm like, well, what if we just like had your community come in and watch me do a live uh, Zoom? And uh, so it was like, not every joke's totally funny, but I'm not. A lot of comedians put the audience in pain. Like famous comedians, are like I'm gonna go work on my new stuff at a comedy club that's not tested. I test them with another comedian. I test it with my wife. I test it with people on my team. So by the time I say it on a Zoom, there's a high likelihood that it's funny. Not all of it is, and I get that feedback, and I have to refine it. The longest I've ever been on stage without a laugh in comedy was 60 seconds. It was December 26, 2020, and I was trying 20 minutes of new material. And about 18 minutes in, I lost my footing. I didn't know where I was. I was, and it was just like um, 60 seconds of no laughter in a comedy that's a set. Time. That's that's a long time. Yeah, you know, it was a long time. So I just I ended in my set a minute short. I was like, you know, let's just do a joke I know works, and then get the hell off stage and stop putting through pain one of the principles in life is just get your reps in people don't get enough reps and they look at people like you probably people like me in other areas and they're like oh i could do that and then you get up and you try it and it's like man they've they've discounted the years of labor that went into reps and you just refine over and over you know yeah man i i have this kind of formula that helped help me with the system like anything i want to do in life i just have four things that always come up so first, I, kind of the pre thing is I just speak what I want to do into existence. So I just tell someone, I'm going to do this. And then as soon as I say it, the next step is I call someone and I work in a co-creation format. So when I was like, I want to be, I want to do an open mic. I said that to my buddy. And I next thing I did is I called my buddy Marcus, who was runner up on Last Comic Standing. And I said, hey, I want to write an, an open mic set. What are you doing tomorrow? And we sat down for two hours. We wrote the set. Because I had this premise that I look like Jesus, I just don't have his powers. And I wrote a four minute and 20 second set. Two weeks later, I did an open mic and it was good enough. Uh, by the way, the night before I was doing the jokes for my wife, but I didn't have them memorized. And she's like, you're not really going on stage with that, are you? I was like, oh, oh no. damn. So I just, I do that next 12 hours was just like working and working. And I was so scared to go up there and it went really well. And my buddy's like, all right, you're not going to open for us. You're good. You could do this. So for two years, I just was a hobby. It was just fun. And it just started as some, but the, the first step is co-create. The second step is eliminate. Like we have to face our fears to do anything extraordinary. And I think a lot of our fears show up as escapisms, 
when we get confronted for me, it might be, oh, shit, I'm just going to listen to sports talk radio. I'm going to get addicted to some TV series so I don't have to face this. I'm going to put off conversations that are occupying my mind. I mean, like there's just all these things that we easily can make a distraction. Oh, I got to get this done before I can do that. So I had to confront that and face that, which is everything from meditation to plant medicine to a number of things that help me get through my escapisms. And then the third step is delegation. Like who can I delegate things to that offload things in my life so I can focus on this new venture, this new project, this new opportunity. And then finally, when I'm at a certain point, then it's collaboration. So when I was like, all right, we're going to film a special. Then I went to my manager and he brought in a multi-Emmy winner, Marty Kallner, to be an executive um, producer. He brought in this guy, you know, that was a, won an Emmy with Seinfeld to be the editor. He brought in a lighting director that won an Emmy. So like that made a much bigger, better set than I could ever imagine. What they did with set design and, and lighting and camera angles and the director they brought had eight specials on Netflix. So collaboration gets us beyond where our current capabilities are to be able to accomplish things that most people take years to do the hard way. But I'm like, I'd rather accelerate and use people that have gifts and abilities that can help me see something I could never know on my own. And the next thing you know, November 15th is an amateur to April 15th, having a full on special that's being looked at by the streaming services. That's because of that formula. That's amazing. I love that. I got a question for you. People ask me quite frequently, like, you know, I've got several brands, we've got a lot of different things we're doing, and some of them are not related. And when you look at like, when, when you look at your career and your trajectory and your portfolio, you've got like the, the finance and the wealth wealth factory, building wealth, longevity, durability, and then you've got comedy. They don't feel like they go together. What was that kind of decision like for you to take on something new? How does that process look like? Okay. So first off, like nobody in wealth looks like me either. Nobody shows up with long hair, wearing jeans and a t-shirt and a bit like, I just do things the way I want to do them. And if I'm candid, like how many people buy my books? I've sold maybe half a million books between all seven books that I've written. And and how many people read that thing? How many people read the book and did something because of it? And I think it's alarmingly low if I'm real candid. And so I'm sitting there doing this hobby thing with comedy. And then one day this manager sees me perform and he's like, dude, you're really good. And nobody's ever done this in money. And so he saw that. And I was like, yeah, writing money jokes is a little bit harder than writing jokes. He's like, yeah, but let's work on it. So for a year, we messed around with how I could get beyond my 20 minute set that I had and start to become more of a comedian and accept that as a term in my life. And then I just realized, dude, comedy, man, we need it in finance because who's the court jester? Like who's going to speak truth that it's not afraid about how that truth lands. Like when I was a little kid, I could tell dirty jokes to my grandparents and my parents and I didn't get in trouble. If I said those words outside of a joke, I got in a lot of trouble. So I think it's the same thing in money. I can say things that nobody else in money could say because it's somewhat tongue in cheek, but it makes people think. And so it was really this blue ocean, like who's doing this? We see it in politics, every comedy, you know, there's tons of comedians in politics from Bill Maher to you name it, anyone that's on Comedy Central, you know, Trevor Noah, we even see that in religion a lot of times, but, and these are topics you're not supposed to talk about around the dinner table, religion, and you're not supposed to talk about politics with strangers, but what about money? I just don't think there's comedians that know enough about money to do that. And so it gave me this really unique opportunity that someone will watch a 56 minute comedy special from beginning to end where they might not read a book from beginning to end. And I can reach 10 times or a hundred times more people having a whole hell of a lot of fun doing it too. 
It's like laughter being the universal language, a universal language, one of probably three, uh, which you could probably explain better than I am. It seems like comedy is kind of like your Trojan horse, where it's like it allows you to you're, you're making people laugh and making them financially literate and free at the same time. Yeah, I think about they say that people remember three times more when they're scared or three times more when they laugh. I'm like, if you want to get scared, watch the news. I'll make you laugh and learn instead. You know, so uh, it, it's a it's it's fun for me. It's challenging for me. I've grown more since I chose this path than I've grown in another time in my life because it's hard for me in my past to be present. I'm always busy. I'm always up to the next thing. I'm always earning more. I'm always doing more. And that makes it really hard just to be present. But comedy is about being present. Like when I have a different conversation in my head than I have with the crowd, I'm not funny. But if I'm if they're hearing the very thought that I'm having the moment I have it, there's a level of connection. And when we laugh, we're not worried about what happened in the past or scared about what's going on in the future. We just simply feel connected in that moment. So like I did, my last comedy set was in Philly. It was about an hour and 25 minutes. And the conversations I have after a comedy set are different than when I'm a speaker. When I'm a speaker, I'm intense. And sometimes that's intimidating. And I'm talking about money, which sometimes is scary. But when I'm telling jokes, it's like everybody comes up and talks to me after the show. And I'm giving out books for free at the end because I'm like, cool, we laugh. Maybe you'll learn. And I just try to get them to read a, at least a page. I'm like, I'm going to sign this if you read a page of the book and you don't have to buy it. That's been my line. That's all. It's it's your flow. Like you go into flow state is what you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I, would do, I did a comedy set here in Salt Lake and my wife is sitting in the front row and she yawned. And rather than think in my head, my wife yawned, I go, oh, God, I'm doing a comedy thing. My wife just yawned. You get to see that. And then I did this ad lib and back and forth with my wife. That was probably the funniest part of the show because I just let them into my mind. I let them in in, a, in an open way, you know, and and. I think my funniest jokes are just my real stories of things that we've done in our family or said and that like people laugh at that because I think you can relate to it when it's real. It's not just a fabricated, you know, idea that's kind of funny. It's like, no, this this is a conversation I really had with my wife. This is a conversation I really had with my son. This is conversations I've heard over and over about money that are kind of insane. Yeah. Okay. Personal question for you. Is there anything at this point in time that you're afraid of or have you dealt with all of that? So in Philly... The director of my one-man show, so I wrote a one-man show where I play guitar, I act out four characters, I do spoken word, and like definitely is challenging. Well, my director was there in Philly for my show, and what I recognized is I really wanted to do well for him and have him be proud of me. And so I still felt that remnant that some kids have from childhood of like, oh, I'm doing this to, to get that attaboy. And I just, instead of like judging, I was like, oh, damn, that's still there. I still have work to do. I didn't like hammer myself about it. You notice it. I noticed it and I, and then once I let go of it, the whole show got better. The whole show, cause I was more connected with the crowd instead of in my own head. Like when I'm behind the door about to go on stage, I just kind of go, all right, I'm gonna let go and I'm gonna let God handle this. I'm just gonna go out there cause this is for the crowd. This isn't about me doing good. This isn't about how I look or how I sound, or how many laughs there are. It's like, I'm here to connect to the room. And as soon as I make it about me, I lose touch with that. And that's where flow kind of comes from. Man, that's that's so good, because that impacts. That That's a lesson for every everybody and everything. It's music, it's business, it's comedy, it's money, it's relationship, it's all of the above. Yeah, the night, the night when I had the terrible rehearsal right before my comedy show, because I was stuck in my head and I was tired. And my manager was like, dude, like it's a good omen. 
The next morning, I'm getting acupuncture the day of the show. I just had this moment of clarity where I was like, make the mistakes tonight. It's okay. It's part of the show. It's part of the experience. It's part of them being there live. And when I made my first mistake, I go, I don't even remember where I'm at. Everybody started laughing. I was comfortable with the mistake. My son yawned in the show. I called out his yawn. I saw my aunt. I talked about the time I peed my pants when I was a little kid because I was scared of World War III. And she helped me out. Like, it's just, there was like the humanity in it. If it's, if it's like overly polished and overly perfect, it feels un, unattainable and it feels like there's a, a shield between the performer and the audience. But I feel like laughter is that connection. It's that, it's that moment. And it's like, just, just go with it. And the crazy thing is in the second show when we filmed, I made this mistake where I went to say the tooth fairy. And then there's another bit about the Easter bunny. And I said the tooth bunny. And the next thing you know is I'm making fun of what would the tooth bunny be and what would it be about? And I went to say the word Viagra and I messed up the word. And then I went off on this whole three minute spill about the only time I ever took Viagra was in Paris. It, it ended up in the special. And my, and my executive producer said, those are called happy accidents. I'll allow for the happy accidents. They're the funniest part. Don't go, oh, I just screwed up and tense up. Go, I just screwed up. Let's laugh about it. Let's make fun of it. And that's the thing. And I think that's what brings that ease and that comfort and that connection. Happy accidents. That's one of my going to be like my main takeaways because there are so many happy accidents in life that I think we just beat ourselves up for. I was, I'm thinking about right now, actually, of just like my first ever real estate deal was a happy accident. But if I'm honest and you go back and look at it, it's like the reason we're in real estate at the level we are today, the reason we're building neighborhoods that we are today is because I messed up in 2018. And I think that's awesome, actually, to reframe the things that might be mistakes in the short term are actually your catalysts in the long term. Perfectly imperfect. You know, I I look at it like I think the things that I love most about my wife and she loves most about me is our quirks. Yeah. The things that are really quirky that like people would see as imperfections, but they're actually these like little lovable packages that you get a laugh about. And so everyone tries to hide their quirks, but it's the thing that makes them most unique. And the reason I'm not afraid of an artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence will probably be too perfect. And I feel like art's imperfection makes it real, makes it like, you know, there's, there's so many stories behind this from like a music producer accidentally scratching the record and that becomes the main hook in a song. Or, you know, like, like I was watching this thing with Paul McCartney and Rick Rubin on Hulu and he was just talking about he learned a new chord from some jazz artist in a guitar shop and he, he, he learned how to say something in French from his friend's wife that was a French teacher. And then all of a sudden those two things come together in a song that's just a happy accident that ends up becoming iconic. I think a lot of times we think everything's too programmed and professional and, and sometimes when we're in flow, I think we can just tap into consciousness and things flow through us that we can never imagine on our own, but we just allow when we remove fear and censorship, we, we come through in a beautiful way. The reason what you're saying is so profound and I think it's so true is people are too insecure and they think that everybody else has this grand strategy in life and business. And they think that you just thought all of this through and you were like, yeah, I'm, my grand master plan is to connect comedy with wealth, but it was probably more organic than that. And there's, when you get the, rid of the insecurity, you can let life be just an awesome experience and move forward into new things. Yeah, what really happened for me was we went to Italy for 63 days and I told my partners, I'm like, I want to go to Italy and not work. And I just want to spend some time with my family over a summer. And so we worked on it for a couple of years. And I finally went and I was nervous, you know, I was like, okay, what's this going to look like? And, and it, it took me two and a half weeks to really get into that trip. Because for two and a half weeks, I was feeling like, 
oh, we're not selling as much in the firm. And I was used to being busy. And I just got super drunk one night with my wife and my buddy. And I'm like, hey, what are the epic concerts you guys want to see? Let's see if any of them are over here in Europe. And we booked some Elton John tickets in, in this little town in Italy. And the next morning, I just woke up with nothing to do. And I was, I was content. I went and had a cappuccino. And when I came back, I had all this space to just think about like, huh, what, what do I want to do that isn't just my business? Because my business was my identity. If someone loved my business, they meant they loved me. If they were disappointed, it meant they were disappointed in me. And all of a sudden, it was a canvas to express art in the world of value on. And then I just started becoming an amateur barista and bought espresso machines because we loved getting into cappuccinos when we were in Italy. And then I started just a few days after we were back, we were at a baseball game. My wife and I was making her laugh. And she's like, she's like, damn, like, where you come up with these jokes? Or where'd you hear them? I'm like, from my own brain. And she's like, they're not bad. And you got to realize for my wife to say not bad, she might as well say you're the funniest man on the planet. And then my buddy Keith Yaki, who we both know, I spoke at his event a couple of days later, first event back from Italy, and he introduced me as being effing hilarious. Over and over, he kept saying, oh, the next speaker's hilarious. I'm like, dude, I'm giving a financial talk. You keep saying hilarious. So I did three minutes of comedy bits. It went well. And that's what led to this is I created space. I think people don't have enough space for hobbies. And those hobbies don't have to make you money or lead anywhere. If they can help you lose track of time and just enjoy life, that has nothing to do with anything other than yourself. We can listen to our inner voice in those moments. And I started having space to myself and that inner voice started to come through and say, hey, what if you did a one man show? Oh, and I had a dream and I made a phone call to Michael Port and hired him as a director quickly. A lot of times we have those thoughts and then we discount it with who am I? I don't have time. What kind of money would it take? And, and you know, like we come up with excuses and those excuses prevent us from listening to our intuition, our inner knowing, that gut feeling. The best things in life come like a light feather to the face. They're not like a brick to the face or a light feather. But if we ignore them, it turns to unrest. It might even lead to depression. And I just found this entire artistic nature to who I was. And it was about expression, not perfection. And what I recognize more than anything is when I was when I was finished in this last set in Philly, I took an extra 10 minutes of ad lib just to hang with everybody because I knew it was the last part of the tour. And in those moments, I was just savoring it. And I was like, you know what? I just spoke this vision into existence one day. I was like, I'm going to do this before I had the resources that I knew how to do it, before I had the wherewithal. I just spoke into existence. And I was like, and guess what? Because I did that, I'm here with you right now. We get to share this moment together. And I feel like life is about those moments, not monuments. Monuments are like awards and accolades and acknowledgement. But I think that the real thing is when we can just listen to that inner voice and be like, because I was led here, I get to experience the essence of life. Yes, so good. And what you're talking about is getting more and more important, I think, as the world gets busier. You know, one of the... One of the best things about 2021 that I've started, because each year I start at the end of the year, I take stock of my habits. And one of the habits I added this year is a 30 minute walk every morning, no phone, no music, no podcast. I'm outside in the cold or the hot in the summer. And I just think, and when you talk about creating space, it's like we're surrounded by so many notifications and so many like pieces of data in our brains, like can't really sift through. When you say that intuition is like a feather to your face, well, when you're on Facebook or we're in the middle of the news, like you can't feel that. And so, so like 63 days, I'm like, man, that's awesome. But even sometimes people need to take 30 minutes, like for 63 days later, but 30 minutes a day can get you prepped for the same type of insights, you know? Yeah, we came home 
from Italy. And within a year, we bought our dream cabin that's on a river. We have a pond. And we just like, I'm, I'm, I'm about to write a book that's going to be completed this month. I'm like, I'm going to go up there. There's magic to being out there in nature and having that quiet where I can really write and where I could really focus and, and really receive. And uh, I just think that we're, we're in stuck in noise. And when we get away from the noise, we find out who we really are. It's not we find out, we remember who we are. That's it. I think we just forget over time. We rediscover it and we follow the breadcrumbs back back to where we know we're supposed to be. So quick question for you, because this idea of creating space, I mean, it's like you kind of have to have a measure of financial freedom to do that. I remember reading one of your books. I don't remember which one. Uh, you kind of have your own viewpoint of financial freedom. You want to talk about that real fast? Yeah, I believe like financial freedom is a state of being, like a perspective. And it's when money is no longer the primary reason or excuse that we would do or not do something. It's a consideration. It's just no longer the consideration. So if I broke it down further, I feel like there's three measures of worth. There's price, there's cost, and there's value. People that focus on price and price alone are never financially free. They're always, you know, is this on sale? Can I get it on a discount? Can I cut this out from my life? And so money kind of rules them. Costs look at the economics behind something. I can have an amazing accountant that costs, the, the price is twice as much, but the cost is next to nothing because of how much more they save me with their expertise. Um, you know, like it might be higher price to fly first class, but the cost is lower because I can write. And on this comedy tour, there was a few times I didn't fly first class for the first time in years. And I just, it reminded me, I'm like, oh damn, I don't write when I'm not in first class. I sit here and you know meditate and zone out, which is fine, but I'm not as comfortable. So lower price, higher cost. But value is this feeling of satisfaction and fulfillment and enjoyment. And most of us have been taught in this world not to focus on how we feel from a value standpoint, to focus instead on price. But when we begin with value first, cost second, price third, that's where financial freedom can truly exist. And when we have that perspective, of abundance and when we have a perspective of value financial freedom is our state of being it's a consciousness at that point yeah that's amazing to piggyback on that because that's why i asked you because i knew i couldn't remember to explain it the way that you explain it because you're jesus uh and i am not financial yeah. <laughs> you're the financial jesus we have a lot of different motivated people that are on our team and we're, we're a goals organization. I believe in the power of setting milestones and having directional certainty in your life. But sometimes I'll talk to somebody young and hungry and they're like, they're, they're been out of shape. They're stressed out because they want to get to this level so bad and they've attached their identity to getting to that level and really having to help them unlearn that what my, you know, what I earn is not my self-worth. It's not, who I am, put, not putting identity in that. But one of my frameworks for doing that is some people need to not necessarily change the goals in their life, but they need to remember how much time they have to achieve them. And they feel like they can't create pace or space because their pace is too quick and they've set these crazy timelines for themselves. Have you gotten trapped in any sort of what I'm talking about where it's like you're so driven that you've, la you've lost contentment? You know what I'm saying? Dude, this is, this is the deal. So a couple of things. Yes multiple times. So first off, people collapse self-worth and net worth and they believe it's, it's the same thing. And that's a trap. Like, you know, it, it's just simply a trap. And I feel like the two ways people get trapped is either in play not to lose, where they're trying to hold on to what they've got, scrimp, save, sacrifice, delay and defer, trade their time for money. And they're just trying to get by, but it's governed by scarcity. 
There's other people who get trapped in play to win. More, bigger, better, faster, right? It's always about the future, never enjoying the present. But both are forms of scarcity. One's running from something or to something. The other one's hiding or holding on to what you have. They're both different forms of that game. And so, look, when I filmed my comedy special, I was on top of the world. I was like, dude, I can't believe I just did this. And then I made this stupid notion. Let's do 15-city comedy tour. I can accomplish anything. And let's do it before 2021's over. And that was a that was like getting stuck in the grind again. And, and so it ended up infringing upon my quality of life because of the time I have with my family, the time I would spend focused on my health, the time that I would spend with downtime, it started to crowd that out. And so... Ironically, you know, when I when I finished my St. Louis date, I just decided I'm not going to promote Philly. It's halfway sold. I'm just going to leave it out as is and enjoy my family over Thanksgiving and all this. And my manager kind of got after me that I didn't sell that out. We sold 12 of 15 cities out on a comedy tour. The only nights we didn't sell out were Monday nights. Monday night is like kryptonite for comedy. Who the hell is going out on a Monday night? But I got trapped in this by creating artificial timelines. Artificial timelines are the enemy to peace of mind. Artificial timelines are the enemy to an abundant life because all of a sudden we don't consider quality of life just to achieve something that we invented to achieve. And that was a crazy thing. I created my own trappings there. And I've done this other times in my life. I've gotten better not to do it because my belief is we can win the game before we even play the game. When you have a vision that's worth winning, when you create a game worth winning, then it's not about what you achieve in the end. It's about the means getting there is the win because it's a life worth living. See, the win is in the work. As soon as I think I'll be happy when I've lost because now I'm stuck in that losing construct. 100%. So as you were talking, the first trap is to play, not to lose. The second is play to win. And I think that the thesis of what you're saying is to play to play. We win when we play. That's my mantra. I win when I play. Is that what your next book is about? It is. It's, 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 I've been working on it for five damn years, man. I mean, how did I know it, bro? How did I know it? I just called that right there. Drop it. You got it. What, yeah. Do you know what it's called yet? I have a few working titles. Win, then play is one title. What's your number is another title because I'm showing people how to come from abundance and creating their win. So I don't know. Uh, I've actually recorded two audiobooks on the topic because the books evolved so much that I, I keep recording it because I'm chopping the book up so much. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's what my one man show is about. My one man show is called Already One, as in W-O-N, but if you think about the double entendre, Already One, we're super connected. So Already One is my one man show and I'm doing it for a paid audience for the first time in January. I did a trial run of it in April, the day after my comedy special and it's the longest standing ovation I've ever gotten. And 80% of the room cried because it is my life's work, dude. And I don't even feel like I wrote it. I feel like it was gifted to me that I received it. And now I'm performing it. And I feel like it's been my biggest stretch on how to live life. Because like, let's face it, so many people write a book on the thing that they struggle with most. And the thing I've struggled with most in my life is being present. And this play is about being present more than anything, even though it talks about the four money personas and the winning and losing personas. And it talks about play to win. But ultimately, what I realize is when I'm present, I'm at my best and I'm playful. When I'm not present, it's because I'm suffering the future or wishing the past was different than it was, which is an impossible task. And so this has been the most healing thing I've ever gone through. And I've spent more hours on my one man show than all my keynotes in 21 years combined. That's how much dedication. 
And my 12 year old, he was 12, he's 14 now when I was writing this, was helping me memorize it. And the coolest thing is he says one day, he goes, dad, I'm listening to everything you say, but I'm confused. Don't you have to sacrifice in order to succeed? And the play's about you don't have to sacrifice to succeed because sacrifice exists in playing not to lose or playing to win. But when we are at the essence, living the life that we were meant to at, at full expression, we're present and when we're present, we're connected to people and to ourselves and we find that flow state. And I've had to figure that out through my own rumblings and mistakes and issues. And in order to be the tool or to be the, the person this flows through, I've got to be the best version of who I am, right? And it isn't about how much I have, it's just how I show up. It's just how I am in the moment. Yeah, dude, you're like, you're definitely born to talk about this because you are filled up with it. Energy is a funny thing, man. The thing about energy is you can feel it through a telephone or through a computer screen. People can be driving their cars and feeling your energy and they can just tell it's almost, I told Keith Yaki, we were walking downtown San Diego, this was a couple years ago, and he was talking to me and I was like, and then we, he would meet people and talk to them and then they would get like buzzed and like alert and laughing and you know, Keith, he can just, he can get anybody talking about anything. I was like, dude, you're like anointed to talk to people and like get people happy and it's like something about you, it's an energy. And um, I, can't, I can't wait to read the book. You got to send it to me uh, so we can like share it and I can read it. I'll send you the uh, audio book that's not released yet. Oh, man, please. And thank you. The first time this even got on my radar ever. Like this is like one of those things that you don't hear people talk about very often. And, the, and sometimes just to be honest at the expense of being rude is like sometimes the people who are talking about it, their level of success doesn't make me want to listen to them. And so it's rare to hear somebody at the very top of the mountain or who has like gone through the achievement and the awards and the success. And they, they have all of the stuff, but then to turn around and be like, Hey, I got free from all of this and you can too. It's, it's a rare thing. But the first time I started thinking about it, I read Simon's book on the infinite game and my daughter was born two and a half years ago. And, uh, she, this was about a year ago. Uh, she was old enough to start talking and she was like wanting, wanting to play. And she was, she was present and I was working at home one night and she wanted to play with something. And I was like, I got to play with you later. And she told Lindsay, my wife, she's like, daddy doesn't want me. And I was like, the, this is the last time I'm going to work at home. Like, I, or, or if I do work at home, anytime she comes to the room, I'm going to stop what I'm doing immediately. And it's just a, a fresh reshuffling of priorities because sometimes we spend our entire lives trying to do the things we're driven to do. And then we get them and we realize that there were better games to play that we didn't have time to play. We didn't make time to play. So I'm so glad you're talking about this because it's definitely something that I've experienced and uh, that I could do better at even now. If we don't heal our childhood trauma, we never play a winning game. That's the bottom line. If we won't heal our childhood trauma, we're trying to earn the unearnable. Here's the great lie that many breadwinners say, I'm doing this for you. No, no. Like, dude, You've been able to put food on the table for a long time. I've been able to put food on the table for a long time. And my wife once called me out on that way back in the day. I was like, I'm doing this for you. I'm doing this for us. She goes, no, that's, that's not true at all. Like we can move into a smaller house if that's what it took. She's like, I just want you and you're never present, you know? And it was a, it was a hard, it was a hard conversation. It was, it was worse than that. It was, I had these, and it's in the play, I, I have this moment where I talk about, I have two business partners that die in a plane crash. And when they died, I was like, look, we have 42 employees, three offices, I'm gonna do all I can to honor the legacy. So what that meant was, 
I was up in the morning before my son was, and I would go to work. And by the time I got home at night, he was already asleep. I wasn't intimate with my wife because I was so caught up in all of this. And the first day off I had, because this was June 9th, 2006, the first day off I had was Thanksgiving Day, months later. And so we're driving on the day of Thanksgiving, not even the day before, the day of Thanksgiving to go two hours to visit my family in Price, Utah. And we're halfway through the drive. I hadn't even said a word. My wife hadn't said anything. And my wife was driving because I was so exhausted. And she's like, hey, I want to let you know you're an extraordinary businessman. I thought she said it to make me feel better. And, and initially, it did make me feel better. But then she glances our one-year-old son in the back seat, turns to me and says, but you're an ordinary husband and father. And that was the moment. And I couldn't argue. I, I, I tried to choke back the tears. I got speechless. And you, can, you know I'm not speechless ever. And six days later, I stopped going into the office. I said I was going to take 30 days to focus on self-care and my family. I began working out again. I played with my son. I took time to sleep and recharge. And guess what? That December, I wrote Killing Sacred Cows because I was re-energized because I was with my family. They would go take a nap and I would still have energy because I was nourished by being around the people that mattered most. And I get it. Before you have money to say the family is the most important thing is hard to understand. But I'll tell you, when you really figure it out is when you lose your identity because you have a down year or because you lose money or you, you, you screw up in a big way and they're there for you to pick you up and, and hug you and love you. And like, you know, in 2008, man, I was so overextended and my mother-in-law was paying for my son's speech therapy. You know, my parents were dropping cash into my business to keep it going. Like, I didn't even know that was happening because my mom was running some of my books. Like they just showed up because they believed in me when I didn't even know how to believe in myself. And family is everything. But here's the biggest key that most people will never get because they think it's selfish. But dude, I'm not here to change the world. The world's the world, man. I mean, people got to be responsible for themselves. And until they are, anything I try to do for them is entitlement and enabling them. We got to learn to take care of ourselves. And if you lose the art of taking care of yourself, you're no damn good to anyone else, especially selling out who you really are. And this has been my lesson of 2021 is I am no longer going to be a people pleaser. People pleasing is one of those demonstrative things that ends up creating unhappiness amongst everyone versus reality. And when I try to take care of people and smooth things over and mediate, I end up just patchworking relationships that never have connection because I'm an intermediary that actually prevents that. And maybe those relationships are not meant to happen. Maybe that employee isn't meant to stay. And what I am doing is taking on this burden that stifles creativity, that creates stress. And ultimately, you know, I'm still evolving and learning, but people pleasing was my major lesson this year. And I figured out, wow, that's where my worry comes from, trying to please the unpleasable, trying to control the uncontrollable, trying to do more than what I'm supposed to do or capable of doing. When I said, and I'm taking care of myself, life got better. It actually meant that I actually provided more value and helped more people out. Dude, everything that you're saying could be written down and a book could be written about it on its own. And uh, that's when you know. Uh, in fact, one of the big things is like you calling it out on like one of the most said things for breadwinners is like, I'm doing this for you. And it's like, actually, you're doing it for yourself. You have a chip on your shoulder. You have something to prove. You don't feel that you are worthy and therefore, it pushes you to do things, not for your family, but for your own identity crisis that's happening. So, man, that's like such a big lesson, dude. E even for me, that's like a great lesson. Say it. Say it. Trying to prove something to someone else is a losing game. Even if it creates momentum initially, it leads to bitterness 
and anger, and it will be fed by a feeling of lack and of scarcity. I mean, look, someone told me my comedy sucked during a rehearsal, and it did. It was a bad rehearsal. And it was, it was work for me not to have that be a chip on my shoulder. I was like, don't have that be a chip. Like, dude, like, I don't want to, like, Michael Jordan might be the greatest basketball player of, of all time, but he gave the most miserable Hall of Fame speech of all time. He's the worst at giving credit to anyone of all time. And he seems unhappy overall and miserable for someone that's lived a pretty amazing life because it's a chip on the shoulder. It was always being pissed about something versus finding motivation within. And if we look for external motivation all the time, that's where we're in a very volatile state that goes up and down. Like, look, man, I could make however much money and find someone else that makes more. I could find someone that's funnier, that's better looking, that does whatever. Like, and if we look for those things, we'll always find it. Or we could just say, who am I? And how can I choose expression over perfection? How can I listen to my intuition? How can I, instead of being learned, continue to learn? Instead of being educated, continue to educate. And instead of feeling like I've ever arrived, just be present. And that's a formula that allows for us to stay open and connected rather than shut down and bitter. I'm not going to say anything else. That's the peak. I'm just going to leave it right there. Anything else you want to talk about? Because I don't want to mess anything up since you're on a roll. Or do you just want to keep talking? I'm going to keep taking notes. I mean, we can just keep talking. I mean, I, I want to say that I feel like I'm an articulate person. Not that I always was articulate. I'm articulate because of a formula I use. Write it, speak it, live it. That's it. Write it, speak it, live it. And, and I can access things because I've written it, I've rehearsed it, and I can still be completely spontaneous, but I've been, learned how to be more succinct in the messaging by examining my own shortcomings, acknowledging them with love instead of judgment. And anytime I get pissed and judgmental, I immediately know there's something within me that has yet to be healed. So I'm like, why am I mad at that person? It's definitely some bullshit about me. It's not about them. It's just a reflection that I haven't figured out. Like I was super mad at someone this year and I was like, what is it? And I was like, oh, they're people pleasing. And I'm pissed because I'm trying to learn how not to people please. And now I'm sure what that impact looks like, right? Yeah, definitely. One of the things I started doing early on in my career was journaling. And it wasn't that cool seven years ago. I think it's cooler now than it was then. We have like the one minute journal and the daily stuff and whatever. But back then it was a little, it, it felt a little bit more like kind of frou-frou, you know. Um, but today I can tell you, like I have 4,000 journal entries and that process of writing how you feel and processing with the written word and then reading where you've come from. I mean, it's such a good, I don't even want to use the word hack because it's a foundational thing. It's not like hacking. It's a foundational element of like taking the things in your life and turning them from why is this happening to when's the last time this happened and where did I grow from it? And, you know, you, you say, write it, speak it, live it. Uh, but you can also tack onto that to rehearse and read where you've come from to sometimes it's not the things that we need to learn. It's the things that we need to remind ourselves of or to relearn. So half the time it's unlearning, isn't it? Yeah. Unlearning, learning and relearning. Those are like those three big things. I'm curious for you, like, do you journal? Do you leave yourself notes? And how, how do you kind of process through your thinking? Oh, of course, man. I, I mean, I'm just opening my bag here because I've got my daily, daily five minute journal that I carry around. But I also, I also have these like little journals where if we open them up, I just got tons of like 
insights and notes that kind of come up and, you know, like I might be on a plane and think of something or I might have something come up. And so I'm just constantly taking like, you know, and, and that's where a lot of my writing comes from. You know, that's where a lot of my jokes come from. I don't know. I feel like sometimes I'm, I don't love watching documentaries anymore. I don't love reading books that aren't just spiritual books anymore because they start with a premise and a person's life and that worked for that person, but that doesn't mean that's my path. So I've spent more time, like, I love that you walk and you're in the quiet. I've spent more time quiet with my thoughts and, and then allowing for that to come through. And sometimes I'm astounded because I don't know, I'm maybe a little crazy, but I kind of, I wrote this poem. I have it in my closet. It's like a really amazing poem. And there's parts in this poem where I'm like, damn, that sounds like Muhammad Ali. That sounds like John Lennon. That sounds like William Shakespeare. I don't know that I wrote it. I think I tapped into a consciousness and it just flowed through me because it was one stream of consciousness for this entire poem. Hell, I'd, I'd even read it to you. It's a little bit long, but I mean, I, I would give you an example. Like, I don't know where the hell I came up with that, but I listened. It flowed through me. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of consciousness, I got to ask you this before we wrap up, because when you start talking about consciousness and spirituality, how into crypto are you? I am looking at the entire platform of how I can bring more simplicity and elegance to the middle class and masses using the blockchain and cryptocurrency and artificial intelligence so that the people that can get it in a more accessible, timely manner. Um, so I have money in crypto, but I want to make my money utilizing the technology that is crypto. Yeah, great. So the, the thing about it, is there is a spirituality to it. It is like the most rabid crowd of believers that I've ever seen. And I got hooked on it as well. Have you ever read um, like old PR books and like uh, how crowd theory works? Some, uh, definitely back in the day, you know, whether it was breakthrough advertising or whether it was, you know, like, What's the book that talks about like tulip mania and all that? And, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Those books where like there's the book I've got it somewhere around here. It's a uh, Bernays about PR and public relations and like how there, you start. Yeah, did you watch the documentary uh, Century of the Self? No. Oh, dude, you're in for a treat. All Century right. of the Self is all about Edward Bernays, bro. The whole thing is real, like not the whole thing, but so much of it's around you know, him being the founder or the father of public relations and changing the word propaganda to public yeah. relations. And, and he created the consumeristic society and all these presidents hiring him. My favorite documentary of all time. Dude, okay. I just wrote it down. I'm going to watch it tonight. With like regards to Bitcoin, probably the number one would be Bitcoin. Dude, there's something crazy that happens when everybody aligns behind knowing what is right and wrong. And what's happening from my experience is everybody knows that the current system is wrong. And so first of all, we're snapped into alignment by that. And then everybody, once you get into it, they learn that there is a better way to do it. And then they're snapped into a secondary alignment of what is right. And it's like spiritual, like you can't escape it. And so it's going to be so fascinating to watch over the next couple of months and years what happens. I just saw today that I'm actually going to pull it up right now because they're introducing a new tax. This is on CNBC. The new infrastructure bill is a, the 1.2 trillion deal calls for mandatory yearly tax reporting on any cryptocurrency holders, January, 2023. Uh, and it's going to basically increase what they owe. I'm so fascinated by this idea of like, 
I think these people are going to get so sick of the government that there's legitimate threat of like just overthrowing the government. They water down the soup, man. And you feel it like it's, it's impacting the middle class more than anything, because when you just keep printing money, there's consequence. Yeah. The money ends up in the wealthy's hands. They grab assets. Yeah. The middle class spends it and now everything costs more. And you're like, Hey, we're in this moving target with what they're doing with money that is absurd. But if we took away all morality for a minute, we just took away all morality and you and I were asked to come and run the United States. Hey, no moral code. One of the first tools we might have for running that would be printing money because it's a way to tax people without having them write a bigger check. Sure. Because it's a sell tax. It makes sense. With morality, we know that that's an insane idea. We know that what that's doing to people is so destructive and damaging because it's essentially a way to transfer wealth in, in such a big way. And when you're saying we want a bigger, better government, people don't want a bigger government because bigger and better don't go well together in that because bureaucracy does not equal efficiency. And what people are asking for is certainty without responsibility. And that decimates an entire nation because someone along the line has to create value. And if someone doesn't create value and we're trying to create representation of value, all that does is lower the standard of value because communism would say, hey, we're going to make sure you have a house. Well, how do you make sure I have a house at gunpoint or at a, at a sloppy house that I have to live with too many people? Because eventually someone has to choose into producing that. And if they don't have a choice in the matter, they're in force and nobody produces at a high level with force, which gets us back to the times of we're essentially using a system that's going to be born of bondage again in a legal structure versus an illegal structure, and it really decimates human spirits. So I know it's kind of a dark notion here, but that's why people say, I wanna opt out of this. I'm tired of being lied to, and we know things are going on behind closed doors that are policy that have to do with cronyism is the collapse of society right now. Having corporations with lobbyists tell governments what to approve without accountability. When there's no accountability, and no transparency, the system will eventually be invalid because someone has to create value for it. And someone sitting behind a closed door saying, make it so, can no longer make it so without the power of a gun. And that's unfortunately where the crash course heads. Particularly around the idea of easy money and inflation, it's, it's inevitable that we will get back to a place of feudalism because people will no longer be able to afford the basics. And... I think it's fascinating that people cannot see that, but there's a growing number of those who can, and they view cryptocurrency, Bitcoin in particular, as a solution to that. And so people ask me all the time what I think about it, being a real estate guy, and I'm like, I hope it takes over. I hope it becomes something that cannot be unwound or done away with. Because to me, anything that can not totally reverse, but undo the trajectory we're headed towards, which is feudalism and cronyism is I'm a fan of. What would be fascinating when right now, Bitcoin's like learning a second language. People are translating the language of the dollar into Bitcoin. When you no longer have to look at the value of Bitcoin based upon a dollar amount, but just as a Bitcoin amount, game over. You denominate against the Bitcoin uh, as a store value or a Satoshi. I, I remember talking about this, Garrett, with a group of clients 
And I went and I denominated the S&P 500 from the last 10 years in Bitcoin and it, everything crashes. Everything's crashing. We think that the markets are growing right now, but they're not. They're just being pumped up because the value of money is going down. The buying power decreases, so the value seems to rise. But it's a fake, it's a fake world we're living in. And at some point, you just got to worry about what's going to happen when people figure that out. I'm trying to reach the people that aren't listening through entertainment. Because if I can reach them a little bit and just get them to take a little bit of responsibility and wake up in a way that was a lot easier to wake up to, all of this is solved with responsibility. And, and I got to say, there's been some glimpses of hope. There's been people that have said, you can't force me to do things. I will leave my job if, I, if you force me. And that's a step in the right direction. I feel like part of the problem with, with uh, society is people would rather stay in their comforts than in the truth. And, you know, I come from a coal mining family. Is coal mining the best way to produce energy? Probably not. But that's what they knew. So, you know, hey, well, we want this to continue because that's how we put food on the table. What What's required is not only accountability, but investing in ourselves. People have to have skill sets that matter in the new economy. And any skill set that doesn't matter in the new economy will be invalid eventually, regardless of legislation. And so don't be afraid of it. Invest in yourself. And there's so much free out there if you're willing to take the time to get good content and good information. But it means you might have to give up your TV series for a while. It means that you might have to carve out some time each day where you're doing less complaining about the government or do less complaining about whatever it is the newest issue is, you know, because it, there's so many factions. Vax, not vax, mask, no mask, you know, the, you know, this crime, that crime. Like we've got to take the time that we're upset on social media and invest in something that matters that we can provide value in the world. And that's what's going to help us. Let me tell you one of the things I love about you. And then we'll wrap this up. There are many, your hair, your complexion, all of the above. But when you talk your about- eye color, <laughs> your eye color is magnificent. Thank you, dude. thank you, thank you. Um, when, when you talk about- investing into your education. I couldn't agree more with you. I also believe that one of the responsibilities that we have at the top of the game is to invest into people who are trying to climb. And I'll tell you this, one of the one of the things I know is that you are making an investment through comedy to reach people who you feel like you wouldn't be able to reach through marketing or business or anything. And so thank you for setting an example for people like me because you're investing of your time that's time you could be like, we just talked about family. We just talked about being a good dad. And one of the things you're investing into is reaching people and through mediums that there's no other way to reach them. And so I think it's an example for business owners like me, for people listening to the show, for people who have skills, means, resources, and most importantly, time to pass it along to the next generation or the current generation to teach them how to get free. So thanks for your investment of time today on the show for everything that you do. We're going to talk again. And uh, if there's any way I can help you, sign me up, dude. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of Jesus. We have some good things coming out. I'll hit you up and, uh, you know, look for your support. I appreciate that. All right. Thank you, brother.